who I see as having some potential of reaching out to the world uh, would be, and this is not, I, as you know, I'm an independent, but somebody who might have the right look and uh, uh, look and feel, if I may use that word, to be a uh, humbled uh, president of America reaching out to the world, believe it or not, I think would be John Edwards. Um, Hillary Clinton is still too polarizing and could be perceived as a crook uh, even by the rest of the world. Perceived? <laughs> no comment. Welcome to You Are the Guest, a weekly show where you can be the guest and tell people what you and your friends and neighbors think about news events and issues of the day. It's part talk show, part opinion poll, part reality show, and a whole lot of fun. And it's completely dependent upon your participation as a guest. To be considered as a guest for a future show, check out the website at www.youaretheguest.com for details. Now here's your program host, Bill Grady. Greetings from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and welcome to show number 89 of You Are the Guest, the show where we talk to everyday people just like you and me about their lives and about the issues of the day. Our guest today joins us from New York. You've seen him on CNN and Fox News Network. Imran Anwar, welcome to You Are the Guest. Thank you for having me, Bill. Imran, can you introduce yourself to our first-time listeners? Absolutely. The name is Imran, I-M-R-A-N, Imran, and I'm found at Imran.com and Imran.tv for television on the Internet. Uh, my blog and my video and podcasts are all there. Comments are welcome, and I am always more than happy to hear from your listeners. And what sort of unique perspective do you bring to our show? Well, one of the things that I believe you'd like to bring me back on uh, regularly for is that being a Pakistani-born uh, American, I have seen the world from both sides, the East and the West, the world of Islam and Pakistan and Southeast Asia and the American world. So I bring a unique and balanced perspective that is so needed in these very critical times that we face. And you're one of our more popular guests once again, and so it's wonderful to have this conversation. And every time that we put you on the calendar, it seems like something from the Middle East just pops up just in time for our conversations. Well, Bill, then that means you're either always ahead of the times or you have your pulse on the things that are happening in the world much better than anybody else. Or things never settle down in the Middle East. Absolutely. Hey, let's talk about what's going on today. First of all, bin Laden is calling for Pakistanis to rebel against President Musharraf of Pakistan. What kind of clout does bin Laden have in Pakistan? The interesting thing is that bin Laden is way more popular than any political leader or dictator is in that part of the world or ever has been. But part of that comes from the fact that it is easy to be a demagogue. It's easy to be a rebel. It's easy to be somebody calling for the destruction of something or the other. If bin Laden were actually elected in any country, the fact that he would not be able to create jobs, the fact that he would take away people's rights to watch TV or listen to music, the fact that his people would be out whipping men and women for not being dressed appropriately, the guy would actually lose his clout so fast and his popularity so fast, not only would we not need a $50 million bounty on his head, people would kill him for $50,000 or 50,000 rupees. And that, I think, in an ironic way, would be so great if we actually have him run for election in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. Let him come into power for a few weeks or a few months. Their own, the very people who would bring him into power would hang him. 
That's, it was 50 million. In, in other words, he's a really good critic, but he would be a bad politician. He is a, uh, a politician by accident. The guy was a um, leader because of his choosing to give up a rich lifestyle and to be a uh, really a fighter in the trenches against the Soviet Union. And the U.S. armed and financed him. And at that time, he wasn't even that important that the U.S.'s top people would actually know him on a personal basis. However, after our failed and disastrous exit from Afghanistan in the 80s, when we did not take away the weapons we gave to the Mujahideen, and we did nothing to rebuild Afghanistan, we left a vacuum that he and his people filled in Afghanistan. And since the Soviet Union was already collapsing on its own, they had to look for somebody else, and they fit, set their... Uh, uh, sites on the United States, especially because of our, not just perceived, but our actual semi-unfair, unbalanced policy in the Middle East, which gave bin Laden and his types the rallying point to assemble the 1.3 billion Muslims around the world who might not like violence, but who wanted somebody to stand up to America and say, we have to punish America for its policy on Israel and Palestine. So that's how he became the statesman figure. And even though we know him as a terrorist mastermind for September 11, he really became what he is thanks to bad American policies since the 1980s. What is strange is your reference between him being a leader, but he wouldn't make a really good leader of a country. Correct. Let's, let's, uh, so let's use the word uh, leadership. Uh, let's, let's define leadership. Leadership is the ability to rally people around a point. So it might be a team uh, trying to fight for, you know, the, uh, like the championship or something, or it might be a leader of the people in a community trying to rise up against the, the taxes being imposed by the state or whatever. That requires leadership. Being a head of state, being the CEO of a company, being the person who is running a small business, being the people who build a Boeing 787 or 777 or Airbus 380 jetliner, those are things that you are measured on. Those are things where you have to either deliver results or achieve certain goals or actually make the lives of somebody or the other, your shareholders, your employees, your family, or somebody better. That's the difference between a leader and, let's say, an executive like uh, executive, uh, the President Bush is the chief executive of the United States. In the meantime, bin Laden is not required to be a chief executive of anything. Uh, we silly, in our silly way of describing Al-Qaeda as an organization as opposed to a movement, we try to define him as the CEO of Al-Qaeda, and then he has an executive vice president here and a head of operations. That's silly and stupid on our part because that's not what he is. We should be exposing him for somebody who is simply preaching violence or preaching against a much bigger power that he cannot do anything about, but he can rally hatred. That takes a, lo it's a lot easier to do. And that's why if someday he were to become the president of, let's say, Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is a different case because they do have a lot of wealth that can be used to improve uh, society. However, a country like Pakistan, the poverty, the lack of education, the pollution, the ethnic uh, strife, etc., those are issues not Benazir Bhutto, not Nawaz Sharif, not General Musharraf, not even Bush can solve, either without throwing four to five billion dollars into the issue or making a whole lot of painful decisions. 
no leader, no politician, and no head of state can survive those painful decision-making processes. And hence, even if he came into power, he would not make people richer, he would not reduce crime, he would not be able to reduce pollution, he would not be able to increase literacy, etc., and he would be out on his butt within three to six months, maybe a year at most. And that's the whole funny thing is that we, in our desire to make him a boogeyman and to make him look like this evil mastermind of a movement and an organization, we've actually given him more credibility than he actually would have otherwise. And you're also talking about accountability, because elected politicians should have accountability. And right now, he doesn't have any. And the people that should be holding him accountable, the uh, the people from the Islamic world who really don't like his message of hatred, can't or refuse to hold him accountable. Correct. And there are several reasons for that. One is they do see somebody speaking out or doing something to punish, quote, the people responsible for the Palestinians' plight, for example, and that includes you and me. I'm an American taxpayer, so are you. You may be pro-Bush, I might, I might be anti-Bush. But to them, you and I are paying taxes. Those taxes are used to fund Israel. Israel bombs Palestinians. Hence, Bill and Imran are evil and, uh, and, and deserving of a violent death at the hand of Al-Qaeda, or at the hands of Al-Qaeda. So in that sense, they may abhor violence, but they can justify your death and mine because we are indirectly responsible for the death of Muslims in Afghanistan or, uh, let's say, um, uh, Iraq uh, at the start of the war and in uh, Palestine. What they forget is, obviously, that more Muslims are dying at the hands of al-Qaeda in Iraq on a daily basis than we have killed in Iraq or other places in, uh, since the war ended. And that is the sad thing that we have not done much to highlight because we have made, as a nation, as a country, as a people and as a government, we Americans and the United States of America have not made an effort to reach out to the 1.3 billion Muslims out there. Even if 1 million, even if 100 million of them were violent terrorists, you still have 1.2 billion people who you can point out to and say, hey, you have these 1 million or 0.001% amongst you who are the ones carrying out suicide bombings. You don't see an American, you don't see a John Smith, you don't see a John Zimmerman or a Jew or a Christian or a Catholic or an atheist carrying out these suicide bombings. It is an Al-Qaeda terrorist carrying out these suicide attacks, killing other Muslims. And they are amongst you. They're not coming from Iowa. They're not coming from Long Island, New York. They're not coming from Miami. They are coming from within Iraq. They are coming from Iran, perhaps. They're coming from... Iranians actually are not involved in suicide bombings as much as the Saudi, Yemeni, Pakistani-type, uh, Sunni, fanatic, indoctrinated, illiterate, evil uh, people that call themselves Muslim and embarrass me as a Muslim and obviously destroy innocent human lives. And part of it is that we don't understand them and they don't understand us. So you really just have this dysfunction that continually battles each other. True, Bill. But at the same time, remember um, that... Before uh, Pakistan was helpful to the Nixon administration in opening doors with China, the same logic was applied to red China, and now China is our biggest trading partner. And I actually think we give them too much clout, we give them too much importance, and we give them too much of our money, and that's a whole different discussion we should have another time. However, unless you reach out and open doors and try to converse, nothing will happen. And it is not that the 1.3 billion Muslims just landed from Mars or something. 
we have actually been on the good side of them in the past when we were fighting the Russians. We were on the good side of them under Bill Clinton, and that was under George uh, Bush and uh, Senior and Reagan, when we were the ones arming the Mujahideen, and America was liked and loved. They were on the, we were on the right side of the Muslim history when we had Bill Clinton, and we actually took our time, but we were the ones who went in and helped clean out the Serbian murderers who were killing Muslims, uh, of whom dead bodies are still being found in Serbia and Bosnia. So we are not this evil since uh, 500 years or 200 years or even 100 years. This all came about since our failed exit strategy from Afghanistan in the late 80s, early 90s. So it is, there is still time to undo the damage of 5 to 10 years rather than to assume that nothing can be done. And the whole thing will start from us making an effort. But unfortunately, under the current administration, under the current uh, atmosphere, and the current media sort of uh, uh, latching on to the concept of militant Islam, which is a threat to us, but of a very small nature, but us making this big deal out of a small threat is making the threat bigger. And since we're using the same broad brush strokes to paint all Muslims, we're actually giving them incentive and Literally, people like bin Laden and his henchmen use that. Americans hate you. Americans don't know the difference between a Shia and a Sunni. They don't care about the cartoons being made about your prophet. They hate you. They're, Bush called it a crusade. Guess what that means? Literally, they take these little things and they use those out of context to build up the case against us, much like some of our bigoted uh, nincompoop politicians like uh, Rudy Giuliani, the corrupt and crooked Rudy Giuliani, and people like him who will use the statements made by, say, two uh, uh, Lebanese or uh, uh, Egyptian professors uh, against America or about killing Christians and saying, this is what Islam is all about. So Rudy Giuliani, to me, is just a, uh, a Christian white Al-Qaeda guy, as exactly the op uh, opposite side exists on the other side, and we have the same dangerous people on both sides, and they get media attention, and they get respect. Giuliani gets respect here and the victims uh, and, and the people like him on the other side get respect there. It is these extremists that the Muslims need to weed out from their side, and it is important for us Americans to make sure that we weed out these corrupt, crooked um, uh, demagogues like Rudy Giuliani, etc., from our political process so we can go back to being a great nation, a great state, and a great superpower that the world looks up to instead of hates. Let's talk about the reactionary Islam, because... It seems like that what we see on the media, for example, let's talk about the Swedish cartoonists, when we've got some religious leaders from Islam calling for his death, the West just says, is that just over the top? Do they not understand? And is that just a little story being blown up to big proportion for political means, or is that something really to be feared? Excellent question, Bill. Excellent question. And the, uh, uh, the funny thing is that the answer is yes. It's actually all of the above. The fact of the matter is that, remember, we are dealing with 1.3 billion Muslims, of whom about 85% have no education. They live in squalid conditions in countries like Pakistan with 160 million. India, 150 million Muslims, barely literate enough to get a job. Uh, Indonesia is a little better, but again, lots of Muslims, not enough education. Saudi Arabia, 
a country that is so controlled by the royal family they can uh, uh, you know you can they, they can drink gamble womanize but don't if they let you see uh, uh, the the ankle of a woman without uh, uh, ripping your butt so that's the the lot of the muslim people in general throw into that the fact that their leaders are often in bed with the american government it you know we talk about democracy in iraq but who is the person that we help to keep in power the unelected corrupt evil rulers of saudi arabia the dictator unelected general musharraf of pakistan the evil fat slob undict the dictatorial uh, totally corrupt uh, husni mubarak of egypt i mean the list goes on and on so we do not do ourselves any favors by being so openly hypocritical and looking the other way while our henchmen our dictators our funded crooks actually go out killing their own people staying in power for that so that's part of the problem when you look at these muslims coming from that perspective then one they feel beaten down by themselves by their own people then by america then they don't have the any concept of freedom of expression they basically are told by the mullahs this is what god says they do not have exposure or um, access to the media the education that you and i have and even in america bill we know we do not put death threats on people but literally uh, last week i think at one of the awards uh, some comedian who won uh, an award i think uh, kathy uh, not kathy lee but uh, you know the woman with um, uh, my life on the d list or something is is her oh kathy griffin kathy griffin she made some joke about this being her god or something and the catholic league of america or some fundamentalist dangerous christians of america were able to force the tv stations to censor that and cut that piece out she did not even ask for anybody's death she didn't say death to jews the pope is a, the antichrist or anything like that yet she was chopped off and that's because the network was afraid of losing sponsors exactly but think about it bill nobody is chopping her head off but for a comedian exposure and being seen as funny by an audience is livelihood that's how the people who like uh, the mccarthyists went after the hollywood types you f- you basically starve them to death you do not behead them i'm not making the case that this is the same as somebody chopping off the head of a uh, van gogh's uh, grandson or somebody else in 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 holland however the problem is that we do have hypocrisy on both sides secondly it is important for us to point out to the muslims that we live un- under more liberated uh, standards and so just because they want to live by their standards that should be okay with them and we live by our own and at the same time it is dangerous for us not to stop this 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 um, this this uh, movement it is dangerous for us not to try to prevent this thing from escalating out of control where any time you make a cartoon or write an editorial that the muslims don't like or the christians don't like or the jews and zionists don't like that you will feel threatened so that is something that is a dangerous thing for you and me especially in the media and lastly yes there are people who will exploit this when you do not really have much of a market you can become a global phenomena simply by saying something controversial these days nobody in their right mind would say anything about blacks in america or even homosexuals in america or heaven forbid say anything about the jews in america or the zionist state of israel because you will be run out of town or you'll be run out of dodge however you can say anything about the muslims and that is all free speech and oh but that is real so if i say this or that jew is a miser i am an anti-semite even if i didn't say jews are misers if i say mr goldstein is a miser 
well, you're anti, you're anti, uh, you're anti-Semitic, and you're a bigot. Oh, you know what? Uh, most uh, people in jail are black. Oh, you're just a racist pig. Uh, you cannot say any of that stuff. However, you can say Muslims are going to be the evil scourge, scourge of the uh, 21st century. Oh, you're so right. You're such an, uh, you know, a great analyst. That is the hypocrisy that we are living under. So we have to make sure that we stand for real freedom of speech, yet do not let our values of free speech be exploited by the commercial interests of would-be or failing artists or writers or speech makers or movie makers who exploit that for their commercial benefit. And at the same time, we do have to fight to educate the Muslims about our different approach towards free speech and our different approach to accepting everybody's point of view. So those are all uh, the points that we have to keep in mind, and hence the answer to your wonderful question was yes, 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 and yes. Hey, let's talk about leadership for a minute, because I want to get your opinion on this. I've talked to maybe a dozen people, and I've said, here's how I think America became the country it was in the beginning. And it was because we had someone of character like George Washington who led the way, who had a clear goal of standards and a strong character. And when we got finished with Iraq, we kind of went to people in Iraq and said, okay, who wants to be George Washington? And they said, who's George Washington? Exactly. And so do you think that's one of the problems with Iraq is that nobody thought about who is going to lead this country and do we have a leader that's capable of bringing a new country into democracy? That's such a great question, Bill. Think about it. Back in the uh, early days, in the time of the first Gulf War, somebody asked a gentleman named Dick Cheney, why don't we go in and remove Saddam Hussein? And his words were, because there is nobody to step into his shoes and it would turn into a, drum roll please, quagmire. Fast forward to the second Gulf War, and the same Dick Cheney to this day does not admit that we did not think this through. There were no leaders in place to take over from Saddam Hussein. There was no plan for that, and we are in a quagmire. So unfortunately, just because we need the appearance of a leader does not mean that one can be created out of the, uh, the situation. Now, keep in mind, leaders emerge in situations. Leadership can be taught to people with some basic ability. However, George Washingtons are not manufactured. So that is the problem we face. Yes, there is potential for somebody in Iraq to step forward, but right now there is no opportunity for a true man of the people to emerge because the people themselves are not sure which way the camel will sit. Secondly, we are still running the show. We are still the ones who will say, Mr. Maliki, you're going to be the prime minister. When things aren't going well, we can use him as a whipping boy and say, Maliki isn't delivering, etc., etc. So the issue is, why would I, a potential leader of the Iraqi people living in Baghdad, for example, step into the limelight and also the gun sites of the other side? And also, if I step forward to be a leader, if I'm not on the American side, I'll be shut down. And if I am on the American side, I will not get the trust of the Iraqi people. So it's a no-win situation, even for a real leader, if one were to be found right now, if one existed with George Washington's stature or ability. And let's be sure, George Washington was human, so was Jefferson. So these were great people with many great foibles and weaknesses. 
So it's not that there is some godlike character in them or something that um, that that is impossible to find uh, in every century in every country. It's just that the right situation and the right conditions have to occur. Those do not exist in Iraq right now, and we have not made it easy for somebody to step up to the plate or into power. And when you talk about the frailties of people and people blame the two-party system, you can blame Thomas Jefferson for that because he couldn't get her along with other people in the cabinet. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's plenty of blame to go around even for what we have, but there's plenty more to be thankful for what they did. Oh, absolutely. Let's shift gears here. Let's talk about India and Iran. Does India need to come clean with their ties to Iran? That is such a great question because very few people realize that even though Pakistan, which our listeners should know, I am a Pakistani-born uh, Muslim and, uh, and now an American citizen for many years, um, the fact of the matter is that I, while I credit India for many great things, many of the times we in America are selling our interests um, to a country that was always on the opposite side of us. India was always a Soviet Union ally. India was always a dear friend, a dear friend of Yasser Arafat personally. So the irony is that even though Pakistanis side and, and always support the Palestinian cause, Yasser Arafat considered the prime minister of India at that time his sister, and he used to go there and never come to Pakistan. Similarly, Pakistan and Iran have always been friends because of the Muslim connection and their neighbors. However, it is always a competition between the two because Pakistan was a Sunni military uh, power, and the Iranians always know that they are Shiite and always miss being the Persian Empire that they once were. So they actually compete more than cooperate. India and Iran, on the other hand, are very close friends, and there is a lot going on where India is actually building or insisting on the building of an uh, oil pipeline and gas pipeline that would pass from Iran through Pakistan into India. Pakistan would uh, get royalties on that, of course. But it is India that is uh, the driving force for that. And it is this country that George W. Bush and his administration has agreed to give nuclear, American nuclear technology to. I am shuddering to think when this thing turns into a nightmare for us 20 years from now, you and I will be having a discussion as to why nobody spoke up about us giving our nuclear technology to a country that is taking our jobs, a country that has always sided with the Soviet Union, a country that is deep friends with the, uh, with the Yasser Arafat type people, and also, not to mention Cuba, and also with Iran. Uh, what more can I say? Agree or disagree, if we go into Iran and do a preventive strike, it will slow them down for about two to four years, but then they'll be looking for payback. Um agree on the fact that it, there would be payback even sooner, but it would not really slow them down because the technology is quite easy now to obtain, and it might not even be two years, and it would be uh, presumptuous of us to assume that we could do a strike that would take their capability out even for two years. The White House has reportedly given secret approval for covert operations to destabilize Iran. That's the funny thing is, if we did that, if Iranians do that in Iraq, they are terrorists. If we do that in Iran, uh, we're just the good people. I don't know, you know, how that works. Yeah, so if that's true, is this just going to advance the Iranian nuclear situation, especially once it becomes discovered? 
Oh, absolutely. Even more importantly, it will actually make uh, Iran more popular, uh, not just uh, in the Muslim world, but in the world in general. I mean, we already have people like Hugo Chavez going out beating up on America. I mean, he beats up on Bush, but he's also standing up to America and getting a lot of uh, support from the rest of the world. So we will actually help create a new hero. And ironically, in general, uh, unfortunately, just like the uh, 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 the Irish uh, issue with the, uh, the, uh, the Protestants and the Catholics, Shiite and Sunni Muslims tend to hate each other in those countries. I mean, they can get along fine here and in other parts of the world. But Iran has always been perceived as a Shiite troublemaker that does fund Shiite movements in countries like Pakistan that have led to many, many, many deaths over the years. So the tragedy is that this new apparent desire for our administration to start a new war, quite frankly, is going to be something that even if Iraq takes us 10 years to recover from, starting something with Iran and Iraq at the same time will literally start something that might take us 30 to 40 years to recover from. Let's talk about your recent trip this summer to Pakistan. What things did you see? What things did you learn? And how is America seen by Pakistanis these days? Excellent question and very important in light of what's going on with bin Laden and Musharraf trying to hold on to power. Um, I have family in Pakistan, so I visit my father there uh, regularly, but had not been able to go last year. So I spent uh, nearly two months there this time. And I traveled several cities, including uh, being in Islamabad and Lahore. And the, uh, the, the interesting thing I found was that life there, I was pretty Americanized even when I was living in Pakistan. So life in general around the world is becoming, as it becomes more globalized, it becomes more Americanized. So that is the dominant force that we are in the world as Americans. Uh, tel- multiple television channels, uh, multiple cars in every uh, driveway, people using cell phones and the video cameras, and now the iPhone is arriving there, etc., etc. So all these things are, you, you just see a country with more dust and heat and a little crazier traffic than the United States. It is when you talk to the, uh, even the educated, moderate, modern Pakistani Muslim who had actually been saddened by September 11, they literally would find glee in our suffering because nothing is considered worse in that part of the world than pride and being a bully. And we are perceived as being worse than the Soviet Union ever was. Bill, that is a huge fall from grace for somebody like the United States. For a country like Pakistan that was a U.S. ally against the Soviet Union, for people to actually ruefully wish for the Soviet Union to be a power again because they feel that America's brash, cowboy-style way of being is a bigger threat to world peace and that region in particular. And that's, that's very sad. And do you think that is because of Bush? And will it go away once he's out of power? Or, or how do you see that as uh, maybe diluting or going away? That's a very good question. And uh, the, the first, the, the, the so-called re-election of Bush when he was elected for the first time but uh, became president for the second, that is when it became much worse. That's when it was how can Americans be so dumb, quite frankly. That's the question I was always asked. And for him to have made it worse is quite an achievement. 
the poor handling of Iraq was one. Now the saber rattling with the uh, uh, Iranians is another. So even people who hate the Iranians now feel that the Iranians are onto something and are sympathetic to Iran. Think about it. People who hate Iran are now sympathetic to Iran. Pakistan is now uh, directly has been for several years in the uh, sites of Al-Qaeda. And we have not had a terrorist attack in the United States. Yet Pakistan has been constantly rocked by bombs and suicide bombings. There have been more Pakistani soldiers killed in the hunt for bin Laden than we have lost soldiers in, in, in Iraq. Uh, my count might be off by a little bit, but that's, those are the numbers I've been, um, um, uh, been told. So in the meantime, we have done nothing for Pakistan. We've, we've, you know, we've opened up diplomatic relations again since their nuclear uh, tests back in the day. However, the average Pakistani has not seen the American government or the American nation do anything to improve Pakistan's economy or to make it easier for Pakistanis to do business in America. We did not remove quotas on some of the things that Pakistanis make and sell, while we have done a lot for even China, a country that ships paint, you know, lead paint toys to our kids, uh, puts poisonous chemicals in the fish that gets from, gets from there in the pet food, and who knows what else. Uh, we're selling nuclear secrets or nuclear technology to India. So all of these things are bigger than George Bush now. So, sure, George Bush's departure, unless followed by the election of some uh, crazed man like Rudy Giuliani, or even some... I take it you still don't like Rudy. <laughs> he hasn't done much to uh, win admiration from any other people in the last few months also. Or even somebody I used to respect but is now quite a flake, which is uh, John McCain. I mean, somebody, a warmonger like that, is not going to make a difference if George Bush leaves. It depends entirely on how sincere and humble we are in our outreach when our next president, Republican or Democrat, man or woman, reaches out to the world and says, we are humbled and we need your help to fix this mess that we created, but we are ready to, to be humble if you'll give us a chance. And you will be surprised at how much goodwill will come rushing back. But that requires not just a change of president, but a change of policy and attitude. And that's the biggest thing that we have to be on the lookout for, Bill. Final question. The last time that we talked was back in April, and we talked about some political candidates. <laughs> Basically, six months later, has anything changed in your neck of the woods up there in New York and down in Miami? Are, are we still... Um, undecided both on the Democrats and the Republican side, or, or how do you see it? And also, then, how are those front runners going to be seen if they were to be elected in the Middle East? That's a great question. I think since then, um, Barack Obama has become a little more mature. He's um, uh, surrounded himself with much smarter people than himself. Uh, but he, I still think, is not ready for prime time. Hillary Clinton has actually... Um, uh, sort of emerged more of a front-runner than she was when you and I spoke. Um, I don't know how much of this um, uh, crooked Chinese uh, uh, businessman scandal will hurt her uh, when it was found that he was a felon who was uh, giving her a million dollars. But at the same time, the Republican uh, field hasn't improved, uh, you know, just because uh, an actor has joined uh, does not mean that we have a new Ronald Reagan amongst um, amongst our candidates. 
and McCain's uh, campaign has basically been imploding, and uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, can just, you know, focus on his fights with his ex-wives rather than the rest of the world. So I think on the um, on the candidate side, things haven't changed. Who I see as having some potential of reaching out to the world uh, would be, and this is not, I, as you know, I'm an independent, but somebody who might have the right look and uh, uh, look and feel, if I may use that word, to be a uh, humbled uh, president of America reaching out to the world, believe it or not, I think would be John Edwards. Um, Hillary Clinton is still too polarizing and could be perceived as a crook uh, even by the rest of the world. Perceived? <laughs> no comment. Uh, but John Edwards, believe it or not, has that look and feel of uh, real and false sincerity that is needed in politicians that Bill Clinton had uh, plenty of. Um, on the Republican side, McCain had it, but uh, I think he's, he's a, he's, he really should give up. You know, his straight talk expresses now some called something else, uh, Never Surrender Express, uh, until it runs out of gas. Um, um, I, I think there is still hope for America to one day find a great leader and po- a politician amongst us. And in an ideal world, if we could get a president and a vice president from two different parties running together, I really think we can be the sole and dominant, well-loved superpower. And we have that potential only... Uh, the Romans could have blown the opportunity that history had given them many centuries ago, and now it's up to us to make something of it or wipe it away and lose our great opportunity again. Imran, it's time to play Ask Bill 3. This is where I turn the microphone over to you, and you get to ask me three questions about anything, so fire away. Who do you think will be our next president? Oh, you know, I keep going back and forth on it, and it really is just a toss-up. I still think that uh, Hillary is going to get the Democratic nod unless she just blows up. And your points about Edwards, especially toward the Middle East and all that, makes sense to me. On the Republican side, I think Romney's going to be there. I think that when push comes to shove, um, Thompson isn't going to make it. McCain isn't going to make any headway. Uh, Giuliani is going to blow up because uh, his graveyard is going to uh, haunt him. And so it'll be between Romney and Hillary, and I still think Romney would win that. Mm-hmm. But but that's my opinion. What do you think about that scenario? That's a very possible, plausible scenario, and ironically, I think uh, Hillary Clinton is a much smarter woman than Romney is a politician. But... Uh, Yes, it is still possible that even if she was a stronger candidate, our country may still have um, uh, the the lack of ability to vote in a woman president. Uh, however, it depends on a groundswell. And I think Hillary has too many people who hate her. But if she can do something between now and the election that reduces that number of people or even makes them less against her and gets some momentum, it might actually become... If she can make America start saying, if we're going to make a revolution happen by having a woman president, it just happens that she's Hillary Clinton. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference between America not being ready for a woman president. There will be some people who will never be ready for it. But right now, it's, is America ready for Hillary Clinton? That's the bigger issue. And the other thing that I say is no more Bushes and no more Clintons. <laughs> Amen to that. Uh, I 
have nothing against Chelsea, uh, but I'm sure the Bush twins aren't going to run. Uh, Jeb Bush might have a potential opportunity someday in the future, but uh, who knows. But I, I, for one, coming from a country like Pakistan, where people become politicians because their father was a crooked general who overthrew an elected government, uh, much like General Zia's son uh, is now a uh, political leader, General, um, uh, uh, the, the general who overthrew the elected government in Bangladesh, his, his daughter is a and uh, is is a is a political leader. Uh, this, this Kennedy Kennedy slash Bushization of American politics is not a good thing. I have seen what it does to countries like Pakistan, and it would be a terrible thing for us to go down that path forever. Um, my second question for you: What did you think of this um, drastic half point reduction in the interest rate, which basically is the government uh, funding and protecting? The risk-taking uh, people who took, who gambled on real estate, were flipping properties, made bad guesses, and we now have to bail them out. Well, I still think the financial industry should bail those people out instead of the U.S. government, but that's not going to happen because of the lobbyists and everything else. the The financial industry should bail out the financial industry, not the taxpayers who are paying. Uh, especially in a lot of these cases with these foreclosed mortgages, who are paying high interest rates on their credit cards, paying service charges. And that's kind of what gets me. As an investor, whatever makes the market go up is okay with me, but uh, I think the financial industry should bail out the financial industry. What do you think? I agree, Bill, and um, I'll give you an example. I am blessed to live uh, in, a, in a dream home um, on the water in New York. I also am blessed to have a place in uh, Florida. I um, am blessed to have uh, what I can consider or call a small fleet of boats. I mean, you know, just because it's a, uh, you know, something maybe a very small boat, but I still have several boats. I have, I drive a nice car, and I chose not to extend myself to buy properties, knowing I would flip them every three to six months for a hundred thousand dollars. And guess what? What the government's decision or the Fed's decision is saying to me is, heck, I should have been risking everything that I own and can afford to pay for. I should have risked all this and said, I should buy $2 million properties because I'll sell them for a million and a quarter each. And oops, if I, the market goes down, I can turn around and sue somebody who gave me money and say, you're responsible for my asking you money that you gave me. I mean, this is as screwed up logic as I've ever seen. And then for the government to step in and say, oh, because you were such an idiot and you endangered the whole, your own uh, situation, your own economic situation, and there's enough of you idiot greedy pigs out there, let us bail you out. So the people who were actually saving money will go, are going to be penalized by having less interest earned, etc., etc. I mean, it's shameful. Yeah, it really is crazy. And... But I don't want us to go into a, a depression. I don't want us to go into a market crash. Agreed. Okay. So, you know, it, it, you kind of it just kind of turn your head and roll your eyes and say, boy, I just can't believe these people. Agreed. But, Bill, the problem I have with that is, and don't get me wrong, I love lower interest rate on my credit uh, because, believe me, I live the American dream, thankfully, a lot to the credit system. I have, you know... Uh, uh, a yacht loan, I have a car loan, I have a mortgage, etc., etc. But I got them on fixed interest rates, knowing what I could afford. I wanted to buy a plane because I like to fly, but I chose not to do that because I knew I could not carry it without some risk of the interest rates changing and my not being able to carry that burden. At the same time, 
I am really, my concern is that the moral hazard is the term that is used when people feel that, hey, you know, because the cost of interest is low, I can take bigger gambles. So you're basically enabling that bad behavior. That's my biggest problem is that this will set precedent. So I did not want a recession. And it would be, again, I, ha I have been in situations in the past where I could have lost my home or I could have lost my car or something uh, 15, 20 years ago. However, God saved me. I was able to uh, fight my way out of that situation. So I know what it feels like. And believe me, it's not a happy uh, feeling. But that seems to be the mode of operation for a lot of the financial industry. And you can take a look at credit cards, for example. They're really encourage people who have no business of having a credit card to get a credit card and are happy to then turn the screws on. Oh, I agree. I agree. And the credit card is like you will never hear me say anything good about Al-Qaeda or credit card companies. So can we throw the uh, tobacco industry in there, too? I'd absolutely throw them in there also. And I'm, by the way, uh, we should have a discussion on that another time. It seems that American farmers are growing more tobacco than ever. So that's a whole separate discussion. And it doesn't say much for us when we are out trying to stamp out cigarette smoking in our country, but are heavily encouraging it in other countries, knowing full well that it's a cancer and death that we are selling. But uh, I will come to my third question for you. And that is, do you think George Bush will be doing us any favors if he starts some sort of military operations with Iran? No, because I think they're going to get the nuclear stuff anyways. I, here's what I think. I think we should make it as diplomatically difficult as possible for them to get either the goods that they need or the information or whatever and just, just make it just a big pain in the butt. I think we need to do that in every way, shape, or form. But for them to get the technology, I don't think that we're going to be able to stop it. And once they get it, I still think that the chances are that them ever using it will be slim to none. A agree or disagree? I agree with you, Bill. And then the question, I, you know, it's a follow-up, I guess, is what was the sense of us, um, it's actually a dual follow-up, wouldn't it make sense for us also to be build, reaching out to the Iranian people? And in that sense, wasn't it a small, petty, and foolish step on our part to refuse the Iranian president a uh, visit to the uh, site of the World Trade Center? I think that there is a lot of resentment for Iran for years. And that's just not going to go away in this country. I can look back in my lifetime and say that Iran has been a troublemaker for the majority of my lifetime. And for everybody here just to kind of say, well, you know, forgive and forget, I think that is just really, really tough. Understood. So, so I understand it. Is it, is it good diplomatically? Mm, you know, that's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But I understand it. And, Bill, isn't, uh, wouldn't the, uh, the Iranians be justified in saying that they're... Um that they actually found America to be the troublemaker that overthrew their elected uh, uh, prime minister, imposed the evil, uh, evil, evil Shah of Iran on them, led to millions of Iranians being killed until the Ayatollah came and basically liberated them. Don't get me wrong, I detested the Ayatollah when he was alive and even to this day. But we brought that upon ourselves. So in that sense, did they mess with us more later or was what they did a reaction to the stupid policies that we pursued before that. 
Well, I understand the situation a lot more now, and maybe that's because of the information age. I don't know, but I understand it a lot more today than I did 20 years ago. But yet it's one of those things that I think for a lot of people and probably a lot of people within my generation, it will be a hard thing to just say, okay, you know, the Iranians, they're, they continue to badmouth us and they tell us that we're bad and they want to kill us and they've been telling us that for 20 years and it's going to be real hard just to say, hey, you know what, why don't you come over for a party? Why don't you come over and have a few drinks with us? True, but Bill, in recent history, I have no record of any Iranian president uh, saying death to America or like asking for attacks on America. No, but the perception is that Correct. what comes out of the media or, or that the, what the country or what the people are saying is that they would like nothing for us other than either our culture or our government to go away. Well, our government is something half the world probably wants us to see, uh, get rid of. However, uh, and I'm no apologist for Iran and their uh, uh, extreme uh, religious revolution that killed so many other capable people. However, I just feel that the biggest thing that is important for us to succeed and not just, sur- not just survive, but succeed in the 21st century will be for Americans to realize the things that we did in the 20th century that will continue to haunt us unless we have the wisdom to see what we did and the humility to reach out to the world and say, we understand what we did, we are different now, and we want this to be a great planet to live in, and us to be not even a superpower, we just happen to be a superpower among equals. And I agree completely with that, but also the other side of it is that they have to realize that it's a two-way street. Absolutely. Is that Iran's got to quit nudging us on as well. Absolutely, but that requires opening uh, doors, building bridges, having conversations, which is why it's always such a great pleasure to speak with you, Bill. And probably a couple of new leaders on both sides. Absolutely. Imran, do you want to tell about how our listeners can find out about you and read your blog and listen to your podcast and see you on Imran TV? Uh, I would appreciate that very much. Uh, Bill, they can always visit me on the Internet, I-M-R-A-N-Imran.com. Imran.com, and you can click on blog or podcast, send me an email, write your comments on my blog, feel free to disagree as strongly and as vehemently as you like. I respect uh, opposing opinions and generally uh, post almost every comment. Uh, of course, you know, if I get something abusive, I'm not going to post that, uh, but even strongly critical uh, uh, opinions that uh, nobody else would post, you will see them there even when I do not agree with them. So I would welcome the opportunity for your readers and listeners to, uh, to visit and comment. Imran, thank you so much once again for being our guest on You Are the Guest. Thank you. If you'd like to be a guest on a future show, just go to our website at www.youaretheguest.com. Submit your first name, the town where you live, and a short description on why you'd make a good guest. There is no charge for being a guest, and you'll have the opportunity to share what you think and how the news and events from today affect your life. The show's producers will contact you by email if you're chosen for a future show. Remember that you can listen to the show every day at Coolcast Radio. And of course, we always appreciate your subscriptions at iTunes and Yahoo Podcasts. That concludes this week's edition of You Are the Guest from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa. I'm Bill Grady. Thanks for listening.